So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Good day to you, man fans. I'm Ollie Mann. This is The Modern Man, the monthly magazine show for your ears. And here's what we've got coming up for you today. I can't do this anymore. I felt like an animal. I felt like I'd lost all my humanity. I'd lost all sense of self or sense of purpose. In a music industry entrenched in sex, drugs and rock and roll, is there room for sobriety? I meet a man on a mission. Plus... That is it. The magic penis has touched you. There's no going back from that. Alex Fox unpicks heteroflexibility. And Ollie Peart makes and mends. That's all to come on this edition of The Modern Man. But first, your letters. And thank you to everybody who's been in touch following our interview with Elaine and Mark last month about their baby loss. I totally understand why some of you, frankly... Uh, just didn't feel up to listening to that at all. Maybe haven't pressed play on it, but it was lovely to see such great responses from those of you who have. Um, Sammy says, Ollie, it was such a compelling interview, such a beautifully told story. Thank you for sharing it. Uh, Jason says, Ollie, what an amazing conversation. Candor and openness from your guests, sensitivity and thought from you. Uh, thank you. Um, and thanks as well to Laura, who says, Ollie, I've listened to this podcast since your very first episode back in 2015, but last month's show was a first in that it left me sobbing on the sofa, having to pause the episode before the foxhole. I'm a mum of twins, and I run a local twins playgroup. Um, you'll understand the significance of that if you've listened to the episode, uh, where we often complain to each other about the difficulties and annoyances of life with two babies. Elaine's story was a stark reminder of how very lucky we are. Um, thank you, Laura, and thank you for the work you're doing there as well. Supporting parents with twins is important too. Um, on a different matter now, man fan Andy Blackett says, Ollie, could Ollie Peart please next look into the trend of being overemployed? Uh, that is, working two or more homeworking jobs simultaneously. Uh, there's a thread about it on Reddit, which takes the idea to extremes. There's one chap on there working five jobs all at the same time. The basic idea is to be a bit shit at lots of jobs and get paid for them all. I mentioned it to one of my friends, who was already doing this, but didn't realise it was a thing. <laughs> uh, surely Ollie Peart can easily research how to be a bit shit at lots of things. Uh, well, yes, Andy, it's a good suggestion. It'd be a good listen. I mean, you're right. I've seen it, you know, ever since the pandemic, I've seen it mentioned along with um, quiet quitting. That's the other one, isn't it? Which is basically doing the bare minimum for your paycheck. Uh, but the, the, the fly in the ointment about suggesting that challenge to Ollie Peart is it does ignore the fact that he does actually have a day job working in podcasts for the BBC. We are the side hustle already. So, um, 
to 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 ask Ollie to really adopt this lifestyle and put it to the test, you are essentially asking him to both give up his job and adopt four others, <laughs> which would be a bit of a stretch on the very scant fee we are able to pay him. But uh, it did put a smile on my face, Andy. Thank you for that. Uh, keep those trend suggestions coming in for Ollie Pitt, Mon Man with two Ns, .co.uk. Uh, feedback form is there as well, uh, which is how you can send us anything about what you've heard on the pod. And also, you can support us financially there. Thank you so much to everyone who does that. We rely on your donations to keep going. Uh, Mon Man with two Ns, .co.uk. It's a secure payment form there. Uh, or you can use PayPal. Every penny goes towards this independent podcast. Thank you. Uh, right, on today's show, you will learn what uses 60% less water than an average shower head. You'll learn when not to trigger your fuck it button. And you'll learn the academic term for the concept of the magic penis. Let's go. Time for the Zeitgeist, your trends tested with Ollie Peart. And we were just having a chat off mic, and I was like, no, hold that, hold that answer, because I was interested. Yeah, go on. We just discovered that both of us know how to juggle. Yep. So my question for you is, how did you learn how to juggle? Oh, how did I learn how to juggle? <laughs> oh, it's a war story. Here we go. <laughs> well, youth hostel, Lake District. Perfect. Mid-thousands. Yeah. I, I, I don't know how old I was, but I was in the Boy Scouts. You'd um, exhausted the Diablo. We, yeah, it, <laughs> That's exactly what happened. Did you have some of those bright trousers there, up? I, no, but there was a there was a juggling shop. No joke. There was this, just all they sold was juggling stuff in this small Lake District town. It's amazing how low rents used to be, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> especially there. There was no one there, so we went in. Sold three hacky sacks. <laughs> we bought happy days. Bought you know the standard three balls that yeah. come in. It's, what is it, red, yellow, blue, and green like stripe. Yes, with the, yes, like. with the stitching down the middle. Exactly. Yeah. So Bought those, learned how to juggle. So I went to a holiday camp where I I learned juggling skills for a week. Like I did. Okay, that's quite extreme. Yeah. Okay, so you definitely can juggle with four balls then. No, I only ever did master three. <laughs> but I was like eight. It, oh, was, okay. a, it was like a, a that's day camp. was quite young to learn. It was a yeah. day camp. Yeah, and yeah, it was yeah. like, you know, filmmaking in the afternoon, you know, and in the morning you could do football or juggling. So I was like, okay, juggling. That's amazing. Yeah. How am I only learning this about you now? A whole week. <laughs> Anyway, we're here to talk about uh, trends and mm. to test the trends that you man fans have submitted for Ollie to try. Um, and last month, you may recall, Daisy from London challenged you, Ollie, to restore an antique. Yeah. We decided straight away that we probably didn't want you sort of tampering around inside a Steinway grand piano. Yeah. So we were kind of workshopping maybe like some sort of retro tech. Yeah, retro tech. Yeah, exactly. Um, How did it go? <clears throat> As you well know, with my methodology, yes. my first stop is the internet, right? Yeah. This was not the case this time. Okay. What I did this time is I thought, where do you find loads of old crap? And the answer is... The West um, Country. And you live there. The West Country. <laughs> and a market. And there's a market really near me. And yeah. I thought, I'm going to pop along there. I I'm going to mentally discard all the racist stuff. Yes, exactly. That's half of it, isn't Shut it? Shut that out, yeah. <laughs> um, and I just recall them selling lots and lots of tap. So I thought I'd have a walk around there for some inspiration, see if I could find anything. And sure enough, there is a lot of old tech there. So they're selling things like, um, I mean, this is on the same stand 
that is selling... You remember those trolls where you could model the hair? Of course. That with some um, medals from the war, yeah. an old mirror, mm-hmm. and then just a telephone from 1980. Because of course somebody's going to buy that. I mean, I've been tempted. I think I did buy a second-hand Mr. Potato Head, for example. Right, yeah. But you know the kind of place I mean. So Absolutely. This, this is the market it's we're talking about. sort of thing I like to hang out yeah. at. And then for some reason, there's always one... I bet there's a good chip van. Well, yes, there is a good chip van, mm. but, but, well, I say a chip van, a good burger van, right. which does the chips as well. And um, always there's a stall that just sells endless, endless supplies of socks. Where did they get the socks from? New ones? Yeah, new yeah that baffles me. It, where, where are they coming from? It's not like whoever the sock supplier was supplying to, they still sell socks. Yeah, sure. So exactly. Why have these ones fallen off the back <laughs> of a van? Exactly. I mean, that's exactly what's happened, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, They've come yeah. to the back of a van. Yeah. Anyway... So uh, I was looking for the the right thing that I thought maybe I could do something with that because what we also talked about wasn't just renovating it. We talked about making it sort of smart, didn't we? Yeah. So like taking something from the olden days and yeah. turning it into furniture fit for the 21st century. Yeah. Um, so I was having trouble of sort of figuring out how I could sort of make, a, you know, an old phone smart. Uh, what were the other things that I saw? I saw like a, a sewing machine, how I could make that smart. Uh, I think I saw an old um, an old monitor from like oh no that was it I saw an old mechanical keyboard as well you know the old school mechanical keyboards do you, do you know what my wife got me for my birthday go on I put it on Twitter so I thought you might have seen it so for my I mean I love this this is so in my groove this kind of retro tech <laughs> thing because I love the look and the feel and the style of old stuff yeah but I need it to be connected to the internet because sure. I'm not an idiot so. My wife, for my birthday, got me an oldie-worldie keyboard with clickety-clack keys, Yeah, but it plugs into my Andy's Bluetooth into my Mac. Oh, yeah. So okay. good. Well, and it lights up from underneath like a gaming keyboard. Okay, so those mechanical keyboards, some of them run into like hundreds of pounds. It was 200 quid, this thing yeah. she got me. Yeah. So they are a lot of money. So I did think, oh, I wonder if there's something I could do with that, but I, it just felt like a stretch a bit too far. Mm. So one of the things I thought it could do, and it relates to us, is let's revamp an old radio a speaker Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i thought surely i can figure out a way to make an old radio turn an old radio into a smart speaker so you look at it and you're like that's an old radio Mm -hmm. but then all of a sudden you say the magic words and it becomes a smart speaker Mm -hmm. and then you know you're not dependent on am fm okay so ollie man Mm -hmm. introducing to you oh hang on a radio yeah it's a Philips AM FM radio and looks like one from, I would say, <clears throat> early 80s. Yeah. Precariously hanging out the back of it. I mean, I don't want to put my fingers on it in case I get electrocuted. <laughs> sure. There's a little bit of tape attached to a microchip which appears to be attached to, what are those cables, USB-C, is it? Yeah, yeah, okay. So th- this would this would plug into the wall, right? Oh, okay. I see. So yeah, the battery is for, we're, because we're, we're on location. We're portable. Yes. So okay, fair enough. It's, it's the way that it is. Okay. So um, can I turn it round? Because what I'm expecting to see, right? Because I'm looking at the front of it now. Yeah, sure. What I'm expecting to see from your description and knowing your talents over the past years mm-hmm. is I'm going to turn this round and on the rear view is just going to be an Alexa speaker fucking <laughs> bunged in the back. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not going to even be screwdrivered in. Okay. It's just going to be hanging off the bat with a bit of blue tack. That's be, what I'm expecting. That'd be my guest, Ollie. You okay. go for it. You go for I'll it. be impressed if it's not that. Just uh, delicate. Yeah. yeah. Okay. From the rear, it looks like the original stereo. Well done. Okay. Yeah? Right. Okay. Now, what I would like you to do, <laughs> Ollie Man, yeah. is say the words, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. Not Alexa. The other one. The Apple one? Nope. 
the other uh, one. Oh, the yes, the yeah, the search engine one. Yeah, the search engine <laughs> one. Yeah, with yeah. the words. Okay. Yes. Yeah. But then I've got to ask it to do a thing. Yeah, yeah. I'll ask it the time. How about that? Go for it. Okay. Uh, it's weird. You know, immediately it's weird to be talking to an old device and say those words. Well, you don't look at your smart exactly. speaker when you're talking to it. Exactly. You just talk to the midair, don't you? But yeah. to actually look at a Philips 1980s radio and say this is yeah. weird. But anyway, okay. here goes. Go okay, Google, what's the time? Please log in through the Google Home app. Right, okay. okay. Yeah. There seems to be some kind of Wi-Fi connectivity issue there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's not your fault. No, no, no. You don't work for Google. No, I don't. Um, trying to think how we can fix that. I think we would need to attach it to some kind of hotspot on a phone. Mm. Can you do that? I'm going to hope the journey is more satisfying than the destination, Ollie. Tell me how you came to this brilliant idea. Okay. Well, first of all, I saw the radio and I thought, that, that smacks of... The modern man, for some reason. I don't know why. I like it. It's like a miniature ghetto blaster, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? You sounded like Matt Berry. <laughs> <laughs> a miniature ghetto blaster. But it is. It is, yeah. It's a cool design. Yeah, yeah. it's a really nice design. And I yet thought... you wouldn't buy one. How much was it, by the way? Oh, like five quid. Five quid, yeah. yeah. You, you wouldn't buy one for five quid, even though you could listen to Radio 4 and Classic FM on it. Yeah, to be clear, it was a decent <laughs> working radio, yeah. okay? It was brilliant. It, it worked off batteries, you could plug it in, and it, and it worked absolutely seamlessly and perfectly. So, what I did is I had to take the thing apart, obviously, took the back off, which is just like normal screws and that kind of thing. Inside is something that just feels like it's far more complicated than you would expect for just a normal AM FM radio. Yes. It is unbelievable. Yeah, so I've opened up the back of stereos before just because I'm interested in that kind of thing. Yeah. And I've been amazed like what all the different meshes do and wires. Like it does it you'd think it would be really straightforward behind the scenes, but there seemed to be like acoustic balancing going on. Yeah, not even just that, but the dial here, so it's got a it's a twisty dial, so which moves the it's little needle reviewing an AM FM radio <laughs> from 1983. <laughs> It's got all no. the mod cons. It's got an extendable UHF. But listen, this is this is <laughs> I genuinely found this fascinating, and I just I think so many people would as well because that little uh, the little needle obviously moves up and down as you turn the dial. Mm. I thought I didn't even think about how that might work, but when you open it up, the wheel had a bit of wire around it yes, that yeah, went yeah, round yeah. another pulley, like a steering column, or and something. and then you're like it went round another pulley yeah. and another pulley, and that's how it operated. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. Yeah. And I mean, even the switches and stuff, there was something really satisfying about those sort of analog type switches. There's also something beautiful, isn't there, in something that was obviously mass produced like this, mm-hmm. that behind the scenes you can still see the intricacy of the engineering. Yeah. That there's anything surprising and intricate about something mass produced when you open it up. Yeah. Because you just sort of assume it must all just be a plastic mould or something, but Absolutely. it isn't when yeah, you look yeah. behind. Well, so this is the thing. So then the next step, was once I got all the guts out of the stuff, I had to take apart a Google smart speaker, right? That's a totally different experience. It's not the same. It's way less mechanical. Mm. First and foremost, it doesn't work with a normal Phillips head screwdriver. Mm. You've got to go out and get yourself a special set of uh, TR8 and TR6 bloody micro screwdrivers. Is is that like what a jeweler uses? Or are they even Uh, more specialist than that? I don't think they're... They're not overly specialist. Like, you could pop into the the range or screw fixing and go and get yeah. one. But you it's just annoying. You haven't got one knocking around the house. Yeah, You've yeah. got to go out and go and get this thing. I mean, we've spoken about this before, about how, like, uh, tech companies and the way that they license their stuff, it makes it really difficult to access the stuff inside and mm. repair it. They're not really built for that. They're not designed for that. So you've got to get the sticky stuff off the back. you then got to unscrew the thing. And it's less 
appealing inside. Okay, so, so basically, to cut yeah. to the chase, you've taken the motherboard out of a smart speaker and stuck it where the motherboard from a Philips uh, radio used to yeah, be. Yeah, and then the speaker from the... Um, from the Google speakers in there. I wanted to use the original speaker, which yeah. I would have done, but the connections that Google use are slightly different. Um, so you could have done it if you, you, you had the time to do all the soldering. The thing is, though, like I've got at home an old hi fi that mm-hmm. I got when I was 16, yeah. which is a Denon one, and it was good when I got it. It was like 300 quid when I got it, mm-hmm. uh, but it's got a mini disc on it and a CD player and a cassette deck, so obviously I don't need it anymore. And so for years, it was just in the attic. And then I discovered Amazon do, don't they? An Echo Flex, I think it's called, which is like a tenor. Yeah. And it's just a plug yeah. with um, the A word in it that you plug. Now I sound like I'm talking about assholes. You understand what it is. The smart A sure. word. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a plug that goes into the wall that has an auxiliary cable coming out of it. And the cable goes into the input of my old hi fi. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That costs £10. That's a more elegant solution than what you've done, isn't it? Couldn't that do this as well? Doesn't this have an input? I think it did, yeah, and, but but I agree with you, and I think th- this is this is half the problem with the our, our sort of idea to try and make stuff smart. Technology has circumnavigated the hobbyist. Well, smart TVs, you know, like it's just plugging in a dongle, so you can take any kind of old tech. I mean, I have uh, my smart plugs at home, so I haven't changed the plugs. I've just plugged in the the additional socket, and that makes them all smart. So that technology has just been evolving, evolving to retrofit mm. old tech. It's the same with smart doorbells; it's exactly the same. Mm. It, it's, it's making stuff that already exists smart. So there's nothing new there in that. But what I did discover, and one thing that is a growing trend, is the renovation of old tech as it was. So a radio like this, rather than ripping the guts out, actually what you would do instead is clean up those guts, mm. make them super nice and shiny and lovely, like polishing an old classic car, mm. and then put it all back meticulously. And there are people that absolutely love watching other people do that. So yeah. there's um, one YouTube channel called Odd Tinkering. This guy's got like almost 3 million subscribers. And all he does is finds old technology like an Atari, an old Atari, an old Wii controller, old keyboards. And he takes them apart in like 30 minute long videos really meticulously and slowly. You just see his hands and his gloves and he'll wash them all and he'll make sure he like repair them till they are as new. Mm. And he does them almost like ASMR videos and mm. people love them and it's, they are It's the process, isn't it? People like watching a process yeah. of something be made. And I feel like, I mean, if you remember Daisy when she wrote to us was referencing the repair shop and how popular that is. Yeah. It's, I've always thought when I've sort of flicked past that show Oh, this is just Bake Off for people who like furniture or antiques or whatever. But it's the it's the same. It's the thing that people like about watching Bake Off. I personally don't because I don't like cake that much. But it's that thing of like watching someone create something from nothing and something yes. that you could do at home. It's like here's an old thing. Let's restore it. Let's make it better. And it's just the pleasure of watching the process. Isn't Absolutely, it? yeah. And there's a satisfaction in that. And the the difference between that and what I've done with this, which is just put a smart speaker in it, I I feel like I've committed some kind of crime doing that. Mm. Actually, if I just renovated it and made it which I did to the outer side because it was a bit no, battered, but it's, no but it, it is much more useful I'm sorry you can now stream any song in the world and sure. before you could only listen to FM radio yeah this. no I agree I agree but it but it would have still worked and it would have and it would have had a certain quality to it it's like the clicking of the buttons and the turning of the mm. dial and something there's something really nice about that you know a smart speaker you can go out and you can get for 40 quid like that you can't go out and buy that well so, you can Cost a fiver. Cost a fiver. Yeah, but it, but it, but it's it's the satisfaction of it, and you know, I I uh, I totally get it. Like having gone through it. So, what's the coolest thing that you've seen repaired online then? Renovated and made smart, and this is making smart or updating. Mm-hmm. Are classic cars. 
Oh, right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this is taking a, your old, like, you know, an old Porsche 911 or an old bubble car, mm-hmm. completely renovating it and then making it electric. Yeah. It is unbelievable. And unbelievably complex. And expensive. I mean, they really weren't designed, yeah, to Very be expensive. electric. Very expensive, yeah. I mean, we're talking, some of them run into, like, £100,000, yeah. stuff like that. So depending well, that's on what an electric car costs anyway before you've ripped out a gearbox, Yes, right? exactly. Yeah, <laughs> but if you've gone and bought, like, quite a nice old Ferrari, had yeah. the thing renovated, you've already you already spent, like, 50, 60 grand, then you're going to spend another 100 grand making it electric. I mean... You've t- just reminded me of an evening <laughs> that I spent researching today in history with the retrospectors about the Sinclair C5, and I found a guy on YouTube who restores old Sinclair C5s. Oh, really? Before I knew it an hour had gone by <laughs> it is quite compelling isn't it it is yeah, yeah. I, and there's something about it and they've kind of done it in a way or a lot of them have done it in a way where they still have um, you know they haven't lost any of that sort of I don't know mechanical nature probably because there's so much car left are you ready for your challenge for next month I certainly am it is from Manfan George in Devon who says uh, I live by the sea And ever since the pandemic restrictions were lifted, I've noticed more and more folks coming down here to play around with boats. Is this a trend on our island nation? And can Ollie learn some water sports? Oh, well, that's quite handy. I live near the sea. You do? And you are kind of... Watery? Yeah, you are a bit watery. What what do you already know how to do? You can surf, can't you? Uh, I can sail. I can sail a boat. Can you? Okay. Yeah. Um, sailing boat. Can, can you do, do the what's? I'm, I'm making the the, the gesture Wanking with my hands. <laughs> yeah. Can you wank off two men at once? <laughs> what's the thing I'm trying to do? The you know the thing with the, between your legs and you do <laughs> that. <laughs> jet ski. Jet ski. <laughs> can you do jet ski? I have jet skied. Would I say I can jet ski? No. I, I okay. have. I've been on a jet ski. Okay. But I wouldn't say. What I about could. like um? Wait, you're a speed again. Bar- <laughs> I am doing the gesture, which is all just wanking. Now it's yeah. an elephant. Yeah. Can you, uh, like a, a powerboat, like a speedboat, can you do that? No. I've been on one mm. once, so I've never driven one. No, because I think they're quite dangerous. I don't think you can just get on one, can you? Well, see, this is it. Because like, whenever I was on holiday with my dad when I was a kid in like mm. Greece, he would rent a speedboat. Would he? But I don't think you're supposed to, are you? I don't know. All I right. really don't know. Okay, okay. So let's refine this, Ollie. Your challenge yeah. is to come back next time having learnt... To drive a boat, is that even the right word? Steer a boat. Well, we can f- Command a boat. Well, I, on a sailing boat, it would be uh, skippering a boat. Right. Sk- <laughs> skippering a power boat. That's what you're going to do for us. Um, which would be a good skill for you to have, wouldn't it? And now you've got the perfect radio to take with you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Except well, there's no, no cellular. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Bloody useless. Should have kept his FM. Uh, uh, if you have a challenge that you would like to put to Ollie to try out in a future episode, then contact us now via the feedback form on our website, monmanwith2ends.co.uk. Uh, Ollie, thank you. See you next month. See you next month, Ollie. In a moment, you will meet my interview guest for this month, Chris. Uh, But first, it's time for the record of the month. Um, And unusually, I'm going to tell you what record label this one's on. Uh, Not Saints. That will become relevant later. Uh, In the meantime, enjoy the song. It's called Pedestal People. The artist is Little Tea Leaf.
Now, that record label that I mentioned, Not Saints, uh, what's special about them? Well, uh, they have a man fan working there, for a start, who wrote in to say that they are an incredible organisation and I should interview their boss and hear his story. Uh, His name, it turns out, is Chris DeBanks and this middle feature that you're about to hear is that story. And like a lot of entrepreneurs and campaigners that I've met on this show, what Chris does now is really rooted in his personal journey. So we started by talking about his childhood because Chris always loved music from the age of eight he was petitioning his family for a guitar for Christmas. And when he finally got one, when he was 12, uh, like the rest of us, he learned the chords to come as you are. And a wannabe rock star was born. He had a happy childhood in Buckinghamshire. But then, amidst all this hormonal adolescence, whilst he was busy identifying with Kurt Cobain, his family relocated to Suffolk, where Chris found it hard to make friends and felt increasingly isolated at school. I didn't find any kind of connection with, with you know, with my peers in, in school, within class. It was always very kind of disconnected kind of feeling and, and always almost acting out at school because because of that disconnection, fighting. Um, you know, uh, I inadvertently, accidentally set fire to a classroom <laughs> when I was at secondary school, um, which was How? not... Uh, I was messing around with deodorant and a lighter, you know, okay. one of those Lynx deodorant sticks. Okay, and it, so you weren't actually an arsonist. I wasn't, I wasn't actually an arsonist, but it was, you know, yeah, trying to show off with a deodorant stick and a lighter and kind of, yeah, the, it went on the carpet and, yeah, there was there was a small fire. That... It's interesting, isn't it, because what you're talking about is a feeling of disconnection in yourself mm. that's then manifesting in an exhibiting public way. Mm. You know, everyone look at me. Yeah, I feel distant from you. Mm. It's very common, but it's also psychologically quite weird, isn't it? it you'd think is. if you want to fit in, the way you'd fit in is by fitting in, not by taking part in the classroom. The <laughs> you would think as an introvert, you would stay introverted. Yeah, and but you're almost—I don't know—it's it's that introvert extra, extrovert thing. Seeing all these people around you who are just in in your perception, getting on with life. You know, other teenage kids who are just doing school, having friends, going out on dates with girls, and all that normal stuff. And you're like, I want that. I don't know how to get it because I'm stuck where I am in this disconnected way and it, I lacked the social skills possibly to to kind of to broker those friendships to broker those relationships so then it was purely a case of just acting like an asshole <laughs> to get noticed when did you have your first drink um as this memory has only come back to me quite recently but my dad used to work in the community center bar in the village and they used to have the little bottles of Dela shandy mm. uh, back in the 80s which were about two percent and and of course you know it was the 80s no one thought anything different of giving a kid a little bottle of shandy and i think one sunday i probably had about four or five of these bottles of shandy and i must have been about eight or nine years old and um i remember walking back from the community center just feeling quite giggly and my dad being like are you drunk and i'm like no i just feel really happy and it was this really clear memory of kind of this this slightly wobbly slightly funny feeling that that really kind of i was like i like this uh but things started to happen really quickly then and that was the thing it was it was kind of like one can of beer was not enough um someone introduced me to cannabis so then i was you know trying to get hold of cannabis because that worked really well with beer and it was kind of like this almost like a the mental obsession the kind of like it was it seemed to plant that seed at a really early age where it was like okay I want more of this. Where can I get it from? You know, so I'd start stealing from other family members, booze cupboards, and and things like that. And uh, like yeah. what? 
Oh, vermouth. <laughs> you know, awful, awful 80s drinks that had been gathering dust in the back of the cupboard that no one had ever missed, you know, Martini Rosso and stuff like that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, drinking that to the point of being sick, uh, you know, and, and not. And you're really what, like 15 at this point? About 14, 15, yeah. So, and I had a few older friends, so they would go and buy, you know, crates of beer or crates of. What was that awful orange drink we had in the 90s? Hooch, was it oh hooch? yeah, um, yeah, and and you know buying crates of that and bringing it back to the village, and you know we'd all sit around having a having a drink of that. And see, Alco pops were marketed really at teenagers, weren't they? That's oh, who they were for. Yeah, but you know, Dram Buey from your nan's cupboard isn't. No, no. So was that common? Did you did you get the sense that you were the only one who was rifling around amongst old bottles of spirits? Did you think that was unusual? It, as a teenager, I suppose it felt part of what teenagers did. It was kind of you just you got hold of some cheap booze and you went down the park and you might have a couple of spliffs and then and then kind of get drunk on whatever was kicking around. I suppose I didn't really recognise it as unusual behaviour at the time. It kind of felt like what everyone was doing, but when other friends were turning up, you know, with a couple of cans from their dad's fridge or or you know maybe a small bottle of vodka that they'd they'd managed to get hold of for an older brother or sister, and I'm sat there with a, yeah a bottle of martini or something, Cinzano. Um, you know, it's a, 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 yeah I suppose that that does seem slightly bizarre. And Suffolk, I mean, quite rural and quite a lot of pubs. Yeah, I mean by the yeah. time you're sort of sixteen, I guess you're getting served, are you? I mean it was a rarity, but I probably started going to pubs yeah about the age of sixteen. But borrowing a tie out of my dad's cupboard and then putting that on over my school uniform and then going to the the shop up the other end of the estate um, and buying like a bottle of Frosty Jacks and 20 cigarettes and sitting by myself drinking and at, at that point and that is that's probably you know one of the earliest warning signs because it was you know who sits by themselves drinking three litres of Frosty Jacks unless they're on a very dodgy road um, well I suppose alcoholics is the answer yeah absolutely but do you wouldn't have seen yourself like that as a teenager no no absolutely not I would have just seen myself as a teenager being a teenager you know teenagers sit in the park and drink cider i'm a teenager i'm sitting in the park and drinking cider that's that's that's, that was that was how i viewed it growing up in the 90s was you know get home on a friday after school and you turn tfi friday on and there's chris evans and and uh sean ryder uh, sean ryder at 6 p.m thank you yes absolutely pissed on live tv sitting there having a beer on live tv and then you'd go out with your mates and then come back and it'd be the girly show right you know and and everyone's drinking and and it was ladette culture and it was uh, and and, yeah it was in the dance music scene everyone was on ecstasy it was acid house it was it was it was techno it was you know so it it was just rife it was everywhere you had the gallagher's on the front page of the papers doing the you know doing the cocaine sign and stuff and it just that was you know that that period of Britain, the you know cool Britannia, where everyone seemed to be absolutely off their faces. So as a as a young kind of I suppose impressionable teenager who already had a, a sort of dispensation for you know chasing a an altered mindset, um, I think there was, there was there was nothing to say don't do this. I also around that time started playing in bands as well. So there was a lot of kind of you know drinking, smoking, writing music together. You know getting a bottle of vodka while you're sitting in a in a bedroom writing guitar riffs and things like that <laughs> and the place where music and drugs came together for most of us was was festivals did you did mm. you have an experience like that as well um yeah i think when i went to my first festival um in 19, 1998 so i was quite late sort of getting to festivals i think my parents were, were probably worried about what sort of state or they'd have to bring me home in an ambulance but um yeah i think when when i discovered festivals and kind of mixing 
you know, drinking all day, but then taking other substances to kind of, you know, sustain that longevity. Um, yeah, I think that's where it, it kind of came together. From the age of 17, I was basically always in bands because I thought someday, you know, playing in a pub in Essex, someone from Sony or Universal might just somehow discover me um, playing in a, a backstreet bar to three people. Were you drinking then too before you went on stage? Yeah, definitely. For a lot of young musicians, you know, the the scale of their rider is how they judge, how they gauge their success. Mm. So if you've got, you start with four cans of beer, then you might go to a case of beer if you're third support or whatever. If you're starting to get up into the higher echelons, then you might get bottles of whiskey or bottles of wine. So it it, it, it that in in that way, it almost starts at the very embryonic stages of of a musician's career. If you go to an open mic night, you know it's like here's two free drink tokens mm. for, for musicians who are playing. One of my first ever gigs at the Y Club in Chelmsford, we bought a case of Red Stripe, you know, 24 cans of Red Stripe, and and we were drinking you know three or four cans before we went on stage and then drinking the rest when we came off and it was really like nobody even really thought that was odd or weird like we were the opening act and we, we were just getting a bit pissed before we went on stage and that seemed to be what everybody did to kind of control to control those stage nerves really you know as a musician the first time you're going out you're kind of like oh my god what do i'm gonna do so a few drinks to steady the nerves did it yeah. make you a worse musician though you'd imagine it would yeah yeah. yeah, I think so, yeah. Um, oh, I had lots of bad gigs. Um, I, I think, yeah, we did one New Year's Eve and it was we were on at midnight and it was probably, the I, I can't even remember the show. I know I didn't play a note. I think I got on stage and I couldn't even pick up my bass guitar. I was just, I was in such a state. I've seen a photograph of myself on stage and I just look completely shot through. Uh, it's, um, yeah, it's not, not a pretty sight. You um, knew though, right? Yeah, it was a bad idea. Yeah, absolutely. Um, is there a self-destruct element to it? There's always the fuck it button, um, you know, which is just like, well, I've had one, I might as well have two, or you know, <laughs> yeah. it's, it, or I might as well have five because I've, you know, I've had a whiskey and then I'll have, you know, but I'll slow it down now. I'll have some beers and stuff. And it's, I think with with alcoholism and addiction, it's you know, one one is never enough. It's a bad idea. It is a bad idea. But you know, anybody can be saying it to you. Even your mum could say to you, "This just don't do that," and you have no control. Did you have those conversations with your family? Um, thankfully, by the time I was sort of in the major throes of it, I was I was sort of living down in Brighton. They were still up in Suffolk, so a lot of the kind of uh, chaotic behaviour and stuff they they were quite distant from. Um, but there were certainly times where I I remember one Christmas Eve, I decided it would be a really good idea to um, drink on the train back to to East Anglia. I got off in Colchester to see some friends, went to the pub, got absolutely plastered, got back on the train, fell asleep on the train, woke up in Norwich. Um, on Christmas Eve and there were no trains back to Ipswich and so my dad had to pay like £150 for a taxi to me, for me to get from Norwich to back to back to Ipswich and yeah big conversations happened after that you know that I'd basically stuffed Christmas and was not very popular and it, it took a long time to kind of try and to try and sort that out um, because you know it was it was that irresponsible reckless lack of thought for anybody else you know it's all about me and what i want and my you know i'm going to carry on drinking um it's christmas eve i'm going to go and see my mates i'm going to drink on the train i'm going to do that yeah until all the consequences did you up. did you think that christmas oh this is a watershed i should think about my behavior they're right or was it just managing i think i had so many warning signs i think yeah it was it was managing the argument um, you know, and and even in my own bizarre warped thinking, you know, my drink and drug addled brain, there was still I was still resentful 
about the way my dad had spoken to me, even though I'd pretty much trashed the family Christmas, I was still resentful. It's like, how dare he speak to me like that? You know, I'm just, I'm 26 or whatever, and I'm just trying to enjoy my life. And it should have been a wake up call, you know, destroying a family Christmas. For most people, they'd be like, gosh, I should really go and see some, seek some help here. But for me, it was just like, I just became more, I just got resentful, didn't see them for about three months and, you know, and just got on with it. And yeah, was, was, didn't really seem to care. <laughs> Back down in Brighton, Chris began working behind the scenes in the music industry, managing and promoting bands at a grassroots level, where his drinking seemed to be no barrier to his success. You know, you've got this industry where, where drink and drugs are kind of woven into the fabric of everything, you know, and then and then you're kind of going, right, I'm going to work in this, but I know I need to not do this. I, was, I mean, I suppose my, my, my kind of skill set um, is tenacity. I think that's definitely a one. Um, I'm like a dog with a bone most of the time. I'm relatively fearless, I think. I sort of have this mantra of as long as nobody dies, then everything's fine. Um, and uh, and I, I think it's, it's being adaptable. Um, a really good friend of mine said that I'm uh, a, a polymath, so I can basically turn my hand to most things. Um, so jumping from chief financial officer for a dance label to then being a music manager for a folk artist to then being a promoter for a rock night it kind of you have to be able to adapt that having those skills or having those attributes i suppose has always set me in good stead i think it was around 2007 um and we were we were looking to raise some some capital for some recording projects and we hired a, a venue down in brighton and i mean the night was just a massive success we got a load of popular local djs in i mean i was, I was taking a lot of amphetamines at the time so like alcohol wasn't really wasn't really the feature so I suppose that's kind of what made it a success was that the, I was just so focused on delivering this this positive event that you know really brought the, the music community together and that everyone had a really good night that it was it was kind of yeah it was a, a good example of where I could get to within the industry if I just got my shit together so are you saying the amphetamines actually helped you focus in that instant I think in that instant they did because yeah. it was it was kind of yeah because they obviously bring you up it's it's very you know you're very kind of chatty and kind of you know in the moment and it, it kind of helped because it stopped me drinking too much it stopped me doing anything else i was just really focused on kind of you know making sure the bands were looked after making sure the door the door was running well making sure the security guys weren't giving anybody any hassle um and it kind of i had that i'm not going to say clarity of thought because obviously i was substance affected at the time but it was kind of one of those moments of kind of like right i have to make this work and I just sort of thought, right, if I drink, I'm going to be a mess. If I do cocaine, I'm going to be a mess. If I do anything else, but I know this one this one thing that will stop me drinking, stop me taking anything else, that I'll just use that to get me through this situation. Where's the threshold where you stop being a young person? I'm interested in oh, this context. You I know. don't know. You're the same age as me. Where do you think it is? Well, <laughs> I guess the activity that you get away with when you're 24, 25, you can't really when you're 39, let's put it that no. way. Right? Somewhere in the middle, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, for, for me, the acknowledgement of of kind of my my potential career as a musician and my potential within the industry as, as a performing artist um, came around the age of sort of 29, 30, um, you know, where I realised that I was probably not going to play Wembley and I was probably not going to go and get to tour the world as a musician. So I, I kind of uh, decided to go and take myself off to university at the ripe old age of 30. And I think that's that's where that kind of, that line came from, really, for me. It was kind of like, okay, I've, I've done this for 10 years I'm not famous yet. I've not got a sports car. So, you know, I need to do something else if I want to have a career in music for long term, um, rather than just managing bands and promoting at grassroots level if I want to make this my 
my career, then I have to do something different. But you're still drinking and drugging at that stage? Oh, massively, yeah. yeah. And again, universities, I mean, okay, mature students, a bit different to being an undergrad, but you're still around a culture where there's lots of bars and yeah. that's what you do, isn't it? Socialize. No, completely. I mean, that, that was the thing. I mean, it was one mess to the next and it was consequence after consequence, but they, it always felt manageable. And when I decided to go to university, um, I thought, right, I'm never going to get this degree if I carry on using drugs, so I will just drink because everybody drinks and everything's fine and you know that won't be a problem and I think within the first three months of being at university the physical effects of alcoholism really started to take hold um you know I was waking up in the morning shaking I was having to have a drink just to get out the front door turning up a drink to, of what just normally a beer or a cider or something you know sometimes one sometimes two at 10 11 on, in the morning at, at god eight nine in the morning right um you know and it, it was really starting to take hold and it was it was that the situation of of just having a student loan all my friends obviously had jobs i was you know i'd gone to be a student so i'm you know all my all my peers in university were like 2021 20, they're going out to nightclubs and stuff it wasn't really my thing at that point because i was still into bands and kind of doing doing the whole gigs thing so i was finding myself during the week with a student loan of like a couple of thousand pound all my friends are at work well, what do you do so i just take myself down the pub and get absolutely bladdered on a tuesday afternoon or something like that and was that fun? No. Because obviously <laughs> now you talk about it, it doesn't sound it fun. It doesn't sound fun. But what's keeping you going back? It's that searching for connection that I'd had when I was a teenager, you know, that trying to find some connection, you know, and, and the inability to sit with myself. Give us a sense then of your daily intake on a typical day. Um, so I'd normally uh, wake up and it'd be two, three, maybe four beers to get kind of into the day. Um, I generally would be able to hold it together um, until around lunchtime, then probably another three beers or ciders to get through the afternoon. Um, and then in the evening, probably around five-ish, um, it would be kind of straight down the pub, four or five pints, and then more beers at home in the evening. Um, so probably equivalent to 20 to 30 cans of beer a day, I think. Um, you know, definitely by the time I got home in the evening, it was it was drink to oblivion. You know, it was drink until you pass out. There was no kind of like, oh, I'll just have a couple and then I'll go to bed or I'll just have a couple and then I'll have some dinner. It was it was always a case of sort of, yeah, just soon as soon as the day was finished, that was it. It's like, right, just drink till I pass out. Were there situations where you weren't in the pub, you were in other contexts where people were drinking moderately and your behaviour was evidently magnified oh. i mean i'm thinking about weddings like you say christmas yeah so I, I i worked i did a very brief stint um about six months working for a digital agency down in brighton and they they had a conference every year um up in london and so i'd i'd been out the day before i think i think the conference itself was like on like a thursday um and so i'd i'd worked on the wednesday and i got absolutely blasted on the wednesday night um well had been drinking all day secretly went to the conference and we were supposed to be working the conference all day and i think the managing director was just like we need to hide you you're a wreck um so they hid me away all day and then the how, did, how did that feel um not good to be honest i think they stuck me in the cloakroom they were just like you can do coats um you know and i'm there as a kind of salesperson and it was it was it was shameful it was really shameful you know i definitely felt ashamed um you know and and that i'd let people down um but the conference ended the free drinks came out and so it was forgotten you know and then i'm drinking with my work colleagues and everything's fine and then the managing director wanted to take us all for dinner and yeah i by the by the time we i don't even think the food had come out and i was already in blackout 
apparently i don't remember it but i left i and the next thing i knew i woke up in a building site in belgravia needless to say i got fired off the back of it because it was you know it was one of those situations where i was supposed to being be a professional and i just had no control what was the lowest you got um so i think my lowest point was i was i was living in one room above a pub in hove and uh and i had one last friend one last remaining friend ed um who's a lovely guy and he's a a chef and um i borrowed 50 quid off him i I can't remember one weekend i think it was just obviously all spent on booze and and god knows what and uh he needed it back on the monday and so i went and saw him he'd been working all weekend and uh I, i gave him 45 quid back and pocketed a fiver and uh and he said well no i need 50 quid i've got to go and see my mum tomorrow And i said but i need this fiver and um basically what ensued was just me completely losing my shit at him um and just losing losing the plot punches were thrown and um and the next morning i woke up and it was this feeling and a lot of alcoholics talk about you know the feeling of impending doom but it was there was something else nagging at me that something had happened that i couldn't quite put my finger on so i messaged ed and i just said look man what happened last night and i just got back this message this text that just said you need help and and i and i I don't know what it was in that moment but i think it was just something just twigged for me it was it was like i i had flashes of what had happened the night before through the day and and i just thought i can't do this anymore like I felt like a I felt like an animal. I felt like I'd lost all my humanity. I'd lost all sense of self, all sense of purpose. You know, here I was in a trashed room, you know, covered in beer cans, piss stained mattress on the floor. Um, you know, with my last friend telling me you need help, and just thinking this is the end of the road. Later that day, um, picked myself up. I I knew about uh, the drug and alcohol treatment services in Brighton, so I I um, basically carried myself over there. Um, and collapsed onto the reception desk and said, you know, I'm I'm an alcoholic, I really need some help. Um, and they came and spoke to me and they sort of took all my details and things and they said, look, you know, we, we can't see you for, for three weeks. We can't get you in for a detox for three weeks. I broke down in the reception. I was on my hands and knees crying, basically just saying, you've, you've got to help me, I, I can't do this anymore. And a chap turned around to me and he said, you know, have you heard of Alcoholics Anonymous? And I was like yes but it's all about god isn't it um and he said well no it's not you know but if you don't fancy that you could try one of the other fellowships and he gave me a meetings list i sort of didn't think any more of that and i put it in my pocket and i was like okay that's that's fine maybe i'll look at it in a couple of days and i sort of said you know what what can you do can you get me in any sooner and they said no no we have you have to wait three weeks but try keeping a drinking diary to to reduce how much you're you're drinking every day see if you can bring it down by the time we bring you in so i went home and I didn't go home. That's a lie. That's not true. <laughs> I went to the pub and I sat in the pub and um, and I, I pulled out this meetings list and the weirdest twist of fate or, or higher power moment, whatever you want to call it, but a chap walked in who lived with the barmaid and he said, oh, I see you've got a meetings list for the, for this fellowship. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, I'm, I'm a member. Why don't you come to a meeting tonight? Still to come. Chris attends his first meeting and works out how he can make a difference in the music industry when the modern man returns after this. Hey, 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Back to my chat with Chris now. And at his lowest ebb, with no friends left, a chance encounter with a recovering alcoholic has led him, finally, to his first fellowship meeting. It was strange. I mean, anyone that goes to a fellowship meeting, and myself included in this, is that, like the first time you walk in, you've got the kind of the steps up on the wall and, and everyone's talking about how, you know, how hard their life was, but how good everything is now. And it's, it's a kind of, it's a very unusual place to find yourself. But I think by that point, I just, I was so desperate to find anything that would work for me. So I just, I just clung onto my seat. I literally was, yeah. What's it like going to a fellowship meeting like that when you're someone who, you know, you've said was quite inhibited, you know, needed to drink to talk about your emotions or at least to to, to play music that you'd written or, you know, talk to other students at university to suddenly be sitting in a place where you're not drinking and talk about why you drink. That Mm. must be very difficult. The thing I found with it for the first time in a long time is um, people actually wanted to talk to me. You know, I wasn't that guy in the pub who's completely wrecked that nobody wants to talk to. I wasn't that nuisance on the phone that was going, can I borrow some money? You know, I was there. All right, I was still drinking at this point, but people could see that I was coming because I was trying to get well, you know, and, and they just welcomed you with open arms, welcomed me with open arms, and they, they really wanted to kind of bring me in. And then I started going every night. I started doing the drink diary, and I did really, really well on the drink diary. Um, and then I literally got some money in from a... An old, an old, an old job, and uh, yeah, went completely ballistic on that, and then um, went on a bender. Went on a massive bender. Spent four hundred quid in about two days, purely on alcohol. Um, but certainly, I brought it down from about two bottles of vodka t- a day to, to to about sixteen units, I think, by the time I went on that bender. And I think that bender was something that I needed because it was it was kind of like if I'm going to do this, I have to do this properly, and it's almost like the last hurrah, if you like. <laughs> so I just went out with a bang. I did eventually start going out to gigs and started to really see for the first time through sober eyes kind of how endemic the drink and drug culture was in the music industry and it really got me to start thinking that this isn't really healthy this isn't really safe for a lot of people um i remember doing a a show at a a hotel somewhere up in sussex and um you know they were bringing cocktails backstage for the band before they played and i was like what is that like you know sort of long island iced teas with eight shots in them and you're thinking Mm. how can anybody drink that before they go on stage and i'd been meeting musicians in recovery as well um in my social life i'd been sort of attending open mic nights uh, a local recovery cafe and i thought you know there's some really really great musicians here who just aren't getting to play who aren't getting to record and the idea kind of like one of those lightning bulb moment light bulb moments or lightning bolt um where i was just like what if we just did this differently what if we what if we did the event sober what if we you know what if we work with these musicians but we really put their recovery at the heart of what we do you know so they're not under pressure to to go and play in pubs to raise money for for recording that you know they they might not even get any money they might just get paid in beer and what's the point of that if they're in recovery do you know what i mean so um the idea sort of came about and um 
what what kind of followed from that was about three months of furious business plan writing and cash flow projections and how can we make this work and talking to various different grant making bodies and uh, eventually we did a crowdfunder um, in August 2018. Mm. Um, what raised, did you put? What was your sell to people? That we're going to do this recovery record label, you know, that we that everybody knows that drink and drugs are, are there. You know, you've got the 27s club, you've got all this all this kind of stuff. The Twenty Sevens Club being Jim Morrison, Amy Jim Winehouse. Jim Morrison, Amy Winehouse, Kurt Cobain, you know, all the right. all the artists that have passed away at the age of twenty seven throughout the years through either drink and drugs or or suicide. Um So the sell was literally, you know, this is the industry, this is how it is at the moment. We want to do this this small thing here that that really just looks after people who don't want to drink, who don't want to use drugs, who want to be a musician, be a recording artist, be a, a sober drummer. Um, you know, give them the opportunities that every other musician has, but they don't have to have alcohol thrust in their face. And it's not a golden cage. We're not. We've never set out to try and kind of shield our eyes from the music industry. Well, but it's not you're... possible, is it? No. I mean, because if it goes really, really well, and one of your acts gets a headline set at Reading, mm. that's sponsored by Carling, right? I yeah, mean, it's right there. Absolutely, yeah. So it's not about kind of building a golden cage, but it's about if you're coming to recovery and you're coming to new recovery. You know, it's about giving you a safe space, a safe, a safe harbour to re-explore yourself as an artist, to re-explore as a musician. Um, you know, and some of the artists that we work with have had really long careers in music. Some have been in music, gone away, come back. You know, and I think it's it's about creating opportunity. Nobody told me that Charlie was here. Ella Hayes is a, a beautiful singer-songwriter that we that we work with up in Essex, and it's a kind of a an almost sort of throwback to the past because I used to have a friend Lee um, up, up in uh, up in Colchester, and he was a mental health nurse at the time, and uh, we used to hang out all the time. It's really you know he's a really good friend, and we hadn't spoken for many many years, and then all of a sudden I got an email from this girl Ella Hayes saying hi. Um, Lee, Lee said I should get in touch with you and I was like Lee who and she said she said his name and I was like oh my god and apparently he's now kind of quite high up in the mental health world in the NHS in Essex and he'd basically been to the treatment centre where Ella was and sort of said look you know you should get in touch with my friend Chris he's just started this recovery record label and I hadn't spoken to him for about 15 years so Ella got in touch and Ella bless her had, had you know really been through it she'd had a she'd been homeless um lots of drink and drug problems um you know really had been very much sort of down and out and she'd been through treatment up in Essex and um, sent us just a couple of links to YouTube videos and um, <clears throat> and they were mostly covers but there was one song in particular called Recovery that, that really stood out that she'd written while she was in treatment and I, I hopped in a car and drove out to Essex and we had a, we had a coffee and a, she just struck me as this really beautiful character because she's, she's sort of very East London very you know sort of manner of speaking but when she opens her, her mouth and her voice comes out it's just this beautiful soulful uh, incredible singer-songwriter who could you know who really could stand up against the likes of Katie Tunstall or or anybody like that or dare I say even Amy Winehouse <laughs> Telling why, why. 
you'd expect to hear in a strange sort of way, though, a singer-songwriter like that on mm. a label like yours. I was surprised to hear a klezmer band. Mm. So I'd, I'd known of Mishkin for a really long time. She was also in a band called Birdie's Baby, who were kind of this gothic cabaret rock band, very popular in Brighton, been around for years and years and years. Um, and again, it was one of those situations where somebody at the treatment centre where I'd been um, had said to Mishkin when she was seeking seeking help for her own drinking issues, um, had said, you should, you should reach out to Chris from Not Saints. So I get this email from this girl who I'd never really spoken to, but I'd been a big fan of her band. And, and she said, you know, hi, it's Mishkin here. I'm now sober. I'd, I'd really like to, to have a chat with you about what we can do. So we met for coffee. Um, it's always meeting for coffee these days. <laughs> but, um, it would be uh, it would be inappropriate to, to meet do for a drink. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so we went, went and sat down and had a coffee. And um, and she told me about this idea she had for a klezmer project, a klezmer folk project, and, and with, with an accordion and a double bass. And, yeah. and I was like, okay, this all sounds very weird. I didn't even know what klezmer was at that point. So I had to take myself off and, and look at Eastern European folk and kind of what, the, what it was and is there a market for it? You know, because we still have, you know, we are still a record label. We still have to find out if, if this stuff's going to work. But it's proved really popular. And, and it's, for Michigan, I think it's become a real focus. She's, she's writing all the music herself and working, get, then getting to choose kind of musicians to come in and play different instruments and things. So it's been a, a really exciting project to be a part of. And though I know that I should leave your life up to the fate, the only thing your heart needs is a stake. And then your latest signing is Phil Mack. Mm. Again, very different sound. I follow the beat, wishing to be free and book on repeat. Are you mocking me? I'm asking you please, I wish I could sleep, I wish I could eat. I'm losing the will, I wish you could see Be honest please Are you wanting me or want me to be? You're following sheep I'm following peace, you following me? Follow be free No follows from me, no honours degrees I'm up in the tree So Phil Mack I met through uh, Paul Danan of Hollyoaks fame Oh yeah um, So I, I went up to Bristol Recovery Festival last year Met Paul Danan who's who's now got a uh, a recovery drama co- um, company Has he? Uh, yeah, so he's... he's um, morning after drama um, so they're based up in Bristol and he said I introduced myself and, and told him what we did and he said you should check out this guy Phil Mack he's he's absolutely amazing I've been you know I've been I've been working with him for a while so so I went back up to Bristol uh, a few weeks later met with Phil and he's just this lovely guy and you know he he's had his drink and drug problems but his real focus is around his mental health and kind of where that's taken him with drink and drugs and kind of and how he's reacted but his his music is is so vulnerable and kind of how he tells his story and all he really wants to do with his music is just to reach people you know who may be going through something who may be experiencing poor mental health or maybe experiencing addiction and and really put something else out there that's relatable you know which i think to hear someone getting really vulnerable in their lyrics and really vulnerable about what they're singing about and and laying their soul out there for you to listen to is, is a kind of really beautiful thing so yeah, yeah. I feel a lot of time for it yeah I love it it's funny isn't it I suppose it's just a cultural archetype but you're fighting against deeply entrenched stuff you know mm. like even just the genre of hip hop you sort of subliminally associate with drugs regardless of the artist mm. folk you know, you're you t- talking about, I mean, I'm talking about a klezmer band, nonetheless, if I'm listening to that, I'm probably, I've probably got a cider in my hands. I'm probably standing in the sunshine at an acoustic festival. How do you disentangle booze from music 
from contemporary music? You can't, really. Um, I think culture and, and music culture especially are so stacked in such a way that it is endemic. Um, I think a, what my my mission and certainly the mission of Not Saints and what we set out to do was just to say that you know, we're not going to try and change the world. We're not going to tell everybody that they shouldn't drink when they're listening to folk music or that they shouldn't take drugs or, or whatever it is. But, you know, we've had 50 years of sex and drugs and rock and roll. You know, <laughs> yeah. We've had 50 years of the 27th Club, of, of fantastic artists at the peak of their career drinking themselves to death, blowing their own brains out, you know, drug overdoses. You know, can we do something now that can just turn the tide on that? Can we value the artists? Can we put well-being above partying, you know, I'm not saying people should stop having a drink at an after party, but if you see somebody that's in trouble, can we can we just start to wrap around them a little bit and really start to make make a change? And that's a message that is actually resonating, isn't it? I mean, it's it's happening across all areas of I was going to say the media, but actually all kinds of professional work mm. now. People are conscious, like they are around sexual harassment in a way they weren't ten years ago. They're conscious of self-destructive people mm. and alcohol in their organizations what more do they need to do i think i think the there is there is i mean there is a huge amount of work being done and, and there's lots of conversations around mental health and there's lots of conversations uh around gender and, and incredible conversations that are happening but i think particularly with addiction and particularly with alcoholism they're still seen as dirty words you know we a keir starmer doesn't have a policy around how he's going to tackle addiction politicians don't talk about that stuff um you know i think people are aware of it but i think there's still so much more to do around the stigma of, of alcoholism and addiction you know it's it's been put in the mental health category but um if you speak to a lot of addicts they wouldn't necessarily consider themselves to have mental health problems um you know maybe it's behavioral maybe it's neurological you know maybe it does fit more under the neurodiverse spectrum i guess also it's it's not sexy to have a psychological disorder but strangely, it is still attractive to go out and get drunk. You know, that sex, drugs and rock and roll thing is potent. Mm. And there's a risk, isn't there, that you just sort of feel a bit like a Christian rock group if you're like, well, we're not going to do drugs, we're not going to do drinking. Yeah, and I, I, th- I think that's, yeah, I think there is definitely that, that kind of, that view still, but that is what you've just said, is, is, is the stigma. You know, it's, it's like, oh, you don't drink. Um, well, I don't know how to talk to you. I'm just going to go and get a, get a pint. Okay, um, it's that thing. It's, it's you know, it's that stigma that we need to break down in society. And like you know, not saying that's that's kind of our function, part of our function, trying to show that yeah, we're not just because we don't drink, just because we don't take drugs. You know, we're not all Christian rock groups. You know, <laughs> the, the, we we have valid. You know, we are valid as 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 musicians. We are kind of here to to make a noise and and kind of just do what you're doing, but we'll do it better because we're sober. Chris Didbanks. And I've linked to all the artists that we mentioned there in the blog post for this episode. You can find that at modernmanwith2ends.co.uk, where you can also find the feedback form if you would like to suggest a future interviewee for the show, just like man fan Laura did. She suggested Chris. Thank you, Laura. Uh, You can find Not Saints at notsaints.co.uk or on the socials they are at notsaintsuk. And worth mentioning, if you or anyone you know thinks that they may have a problem with drugs or alcohol, then please do speak to your GP or contact your local drug and alcohol services who'll be happy to help and offer more guidance. 
coming up next, can you still define as a straight man if you like sleeping with men? Heteroflexibility is in the spotlight with Alex Fox. That's your sex questions in the foxhole after this. Okay, it's time to take your sex questions with the radiant Alex Fox. Hello, Alex. Hello, Ollie. I've actually got a gift for you here. Oh, thank you. This is it looks like a shower head. Uh, well, it pretty much is. Um, that is, in fact, the uh, Womanizer Wave, which I'm mm. surprised to learn is the first ever combined shower head and water massage clitoral stimulator <laughs> ever made. Now, I mean, you're surprised because these are the circles you move in. I'm not surprised. The circles people move their shower heads against themselves in for years. It's uh, a legendary way of masturbating for yeah, women. Nonetheless, I'm not surprised because when people are doing up their bathroom, even if you really love to wank in the shower, like when do you say I want that integrated? Do you know what I mean? Like I feel like... You would need to have the confidence that, for example, a guest using your shower wouldn't look at it and think, oh, that's a sex toy. And, surprisingly, Womanizer have pulled that off because I wouldn't think this was a sex toy. If, if I was using the shower, I'd just think it was a shower head. Well, it's designed to be a shower head as well. Yeah. This, interestingly, is also very ecologically friendly because it uses 60% less water than a standard shower head. <laughs> um, so if you get dirty while you're getting clean, you don't have to worry about wrecking the planet. But so does it vibrate or something when you press a button? What? No, it has various different patterns of water jets. So right. it's got the standard shower for like washing your hair and your skin and whatnot. Mm. And then it's got two different swirling and pulsing patterns that are designed to direct uh, a more powerful stream, a more powerful jet of water, if you will, yeah. directly at the clitoris. Let's take your questions. If you have a question of sex, you can write into the show and Alex will answer it. And today we have this from an anonymous man who says, uh, I consider myself a heterosexual male. Uh, I am emotionally and sexually attracted to females. However, I have had sexual interaction with males both top and bottom, which I really enjoy. When he said, when he said, when he said, well, tentatively, I've had sexual interaction with males. I thought he was going to say, you know, someone at school jacked him off or something. But when you use the phrase top and bottom, I mean, you're talking there about anal sex, basically, right? Yes, usually. Yeah. I mean, it, it can also refer to um, somebody being dominant and somebody being submissive. But yes. I think within this context, it refers Generally. to being the being the giver and the receiver of some sort of anal stimulation, which yes. might be a surprise for someone who defines themselves as heterosexual. He continues. I find myself lost and unsure of my identity. I have no desires to kiss or date a male, but enjoy other sexual contact. I've heard the word heteroflexible, brackets mostly straight, bouncing about before. But there are so many letters after LGBTQ, I don't know where I sit. Oh, this is a tough one, isn't it? Um, I don't think we've really spoken about heteroflexibility before. No, not encountered that term, no. I do want to just uh, quickly as well acknowledge there are so many letters after LGBTQ. That's often used as a slur. I don't think this person is doing that in this context. um, There's that idea, isn't there, of like, oh, there's just so many identities. These people are spoilt and self-indulgent and aren't they all snowflakes? Um, But there have been, I mean, for someone who's just trying to come to terms with what it all means and be respectful... There's been a lot recently. Yes, right? absolutely. People talk about pansexuality, queer, 
non-binary, etc., etc., etc. The list goes on, right? Yes, there are more neologisms, there are more terms these days, and I think they're more commonly used. The idea is not to bamboozle and baffle, it's to uh, for people to find their own identity that fits them specifically, um, makes them feel comfortable, maybe helps them find a community of like-minded people. As a side effect, unfortunately, it can confuse people of, of all sorts of orientations um and and i think that's what's happening here okay what's wrong with bisexual i mean that would it it sounds to me like if i was him that's what i'd call myself i mean you know i I mostly have sex with women but i sometimes have sex with men that's a bisexual isn't it well there's absolutely nothing wrong with bisexual but sometimes people can have a lot of shame and stigma attached to the term bisexual in their minds which might be one reason why they might feel more comfortable with the label heteroflexible instead um to help me explore this topic i spoke to two specialists from two slightly different backgrounds. Um, I chatted to Anthony Davis, who's a psychotherapist and integrative counsellor. That means that he draws upon all sorts of different therapeutic approaches rather than just one. Um, He's also a member of the BACP, British Association for Counselling and Psychotherapy. Um, It's It can be a little bit of a wild west if you try and find a therapist or a counsellor. Not everybody um, is trained in the same way. Uh, And you don't really want a cowboy when you're trying to figure out your own kind of broke back mountain flavoured situation. So going through the BACP, if you do want to speak to a counsellor about a matter like this, is a good idea. Um, It also means that you can specifically choose somebody who is either queer themselves or who, like Anthony, specialises in working with the LGBTQ community and people struggling with sexual orientation. Um, In addition to nattering to Anthony, I spoke to a fabulous Indian bisexual man who was born and raised in West London called Vanit Matha. Um, He's the author of Bisexual Men Exist and created the hashtag Bisexual Men Exist, which went totally viral in 2020, precisely because there was so much debate about whether more men should be owning that label mm. of bisexual and why it can be difficult for some guys uh, to, to, to identify as such. I suppose in brief, the heritage of it is that for years, if you had sex with women as well as with men, it was just easier not to talk about the men bit, right? That's the thing, isn't it? It's not necessarily even from denial, but just from like, if people see me with a woman and they think I'm straight, I'll go with that. Yeah, sometimes historically and sometimes even now, I think people find it just easier uh, to go with uh, the mainstream flow and um, just maintain that they're straight. Um, That might be because they feel some, uh, they're afraid of shaming from others. It might be because they have some internalised shame about that aspect of themselves. They're attracted to men, but that doesn't sit very neatly with them. They might feel upset about that or concerned about it. Mm. Um, it might also just be that they don't think it's anyone else's fucking business who they like to fuck. And, it, and you are allowed to be private. It's interesting. I mean, in this particular instance, our questioner sounds open to being called anything, but just genuinely saying, I don't want to be in a relationship with men. I like having sex with them. And that's a distinction to how I feel about women. So what's the word for that? And. Uh, I mean, what you might ask is why they want a word for it at all. Right. Um, why does this person need feel this need to find their label? Um, as I've touched upon, that can be partly about uh, 
finding a sense of community. It can be about having a, a really easy shorthand to describe yourself to other people if, if and when you want to. Um, it can be about discovering your own truth and your own identity and like wearing that as a badge of honour, feeling like you've really found yourself. Interestingly, there is a proportion of people who argue that it is almost your responsibility if you are some sort of queer or uh, interested in any form of romantic or sexual encounter with other human beings outside of the straight norm. They see it as your responsibility to call yourself what they believe you are because otherwise in their words you get all of the rhythm and none of the blues and it's not fair to all those queer people out there who are out if you are doing the do but not owning up to it. I would argue that it is more dangerous for some people than others to come out and that coming out is a very personal decision. Nobody should feel coerced or forced to come out. But there's also sometimes, I mean I've seen this view expressed, that when someone comes out or says simply, I'm bisexual, they'll say, oh, he's not really bisexual. He's just saying that he's gay. Why can't he just say he's gay? This idea of bisexuality being like a halfway house mm. or a sort of a fib that you tell uh, because you don't want to come fully out as fully gay is one of multiple influences that mean that bisexual men are overlooked or minimised. Yeah, they're seen frequently as just figuring it out and eventually that they'll settle on being gay. Which actually, of course, does happen as well. And that's the other thing, isn't it? it I know plenty happen. of people who would now say I'm gay who, you know, when I knew them at school would say I'm bisexual because they genuinely didn't know. They weren't sure. Well, that's th there are two points there, really. It can happen, it, uh, uh, but that doesn't mean that the bisexual identity that they attributed to themselves earlier in their evolution wasn't true. Wasn't true. Exactly. They may have yeah. genuinely thought they were bisexual at that point. Yeah. It is fine to evolve. It's fine to explore. It's, it's, it's Sexuality is on a spectrum and it's absolutely A-OK -okay to change throughout your lifetime. Secondly, that is not always true. Bisexual people absolutely exist and are consistent often in their bisexuality and that is absolutely valid. Um, but other criticisms that are levelled uh, against bisexuals are they're seen as being greedy or indulgent or they mm. just can't make their mind up, they can't get, an, uh, they can't get enough. Um, bisexual women are often accused rather than being gay, like, like as is often levelled at by men, they're being told they're, they're straight. Uh, mm. and that they're only interacting with women sexually in order to gain attention from other men. There's also a concept that's academically called phallocentrism, um, but which is colloquially known as the magic penis. Now, this is the idea that your sexual identity or your, your wider identity is entirely defined by your interactions and feelings about people with penises. We see it with women when uh, they are deemed not to be virgins anymore, because they've had a penis inside of them and it's totally changed their life, right? Similarly, with men, once you have had one sexual encounter with a person with a penis, often you're then deemed to be gay. You're, you are gay, that is it. The magic penis has touched you. There's no going back from that. When in fact, you may, we may well be bi. Okay, so what did your experts reckon to the term heteroflexible then? Well, both Anthony and Vanit 
underlined the idea that whatever feels right for the person who's written into us is right. They don't want to force him into using a particular label. It's A-OK to try out heteroflexible and see how it feels. Um, and they could see how it might be better to use that say than straight because not only does it uh, encompass a little bit more of, of what this person's tastes are but uh, it's also worth considering that there are lots of queer and gay men out there bi men as well who've had experiences where somebody who purports to be straight has had a sexual experience with them but wants to keep it secret and mm. sort of treats them like a dirty little uh, hidden thing that they don't want to admit to. Men who have experiences with men but call themselves straight are sometimes considered quite dangerous and hurtful by some members of the queer community and, and that can be their experience. So that might be a consideration if you're somebody who is a man who sleeps with men but is calling themselves straight. Ultimately, though, what you call yourself is your decision and your business. You don't owe anyone else more than you owe to yourself in, in that way. Although perhaps if you're sleeping with someone, the, you do owe them a, at least a modicum of respect there. Well, I suppose um, the suggestion is just you're in the closet otherwise, isn't it? You're not facing up to the reality of what you're doing. Yes, and you can hurt people along the way. But I do want to return to that idea that it can also be very difficult for people to come out. And we never and we so often don't always grasp all of the forces that can make it difficult for someone to live openly. So there, there are all sorts of pressures here, right, to everybody involved. That's why there's not one, <laughs> I quote unquote, straight answer on it. Um where heteroflexible perhaps arguably might not be such a good label, um, I spoke to Anthony about the idea that it still puts hetero first, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's not You're not just saying flexible, I mean, mm. to men and women. You're mm. putting the hetero side of that at the front of the word, at the front of your identity, perhaps sort of front of mind. Mm. Although um, pescatarians, I don't think, major on fish, do they? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You're saying, I, I'm mostly vegetarian, but I sometimes eat fish. Still start with the pesk. Yeah, a good point. And Anthony said, well, kind of the same. That is one interpretation of it. But actually, the way that you live your identity is your choice. You can call yourself heteroflexible um, and still sleep with lots of men and, and not have a problem with, with either side of, of yourself. You know, it... it it's not just what you call yourself. It's how you live that that mm. the label that you've chosen too. Anthony did suggest that uh, a lot of his clients actually end up calling themselves queer simply because it's a broader label that encompasses quite a lot. Uh, it still doesn't require you to to uh, explain yourself in detail if you don't wish to. Vineet pointed out that bisexual actually is way more fluid and encompasses lots more variants of uh, fancying men or just being sexually attracted to men versus feeling romantic about women or just feeling sexually attracted about women. There's all sorts of ways to be bisexual. Um, I mean, there's all sorts of ways to be straight. Do you know what I mean? I'm sure there's plenty of, plenty of straight men listening to this who actually also don't have an emotional attachment with the women that they're sleeping with. <laughs> you know, that's not, you know, that's being a man to an extent, isn't it, very often? And that's actually a really good way of thinking about it. Um, I think perhaps we, we fuss about how about the boundaries that we put up when it comes to queer identities in a way that we just don't 
uh, with straight people, it's yet another privilege of being straight, isn't it? That we don't interrogate it anywhere near as much as we do as we do queer identities. Vanit did suggest that if, if this person finds that queer is too open a label and they actually want a bit more specificity, they could call themselves a heteroromantic bisexual. <laughs> um, both of these experts that I spoke to gently suggested that it might be worth our listener here interrogating why they only feel sexual attraction to men and why it's women that they turn to for their romance, for their comfort, for what sounds like maybe their more committed, long-term relationships. Mm. There's not necessarily anything wrong with that, so long as you're communicating clearly to the people who need to know. Vanit himself actually said that when he was younger, he actually only had casual sex with guys because the way that he was socialised, he wasn't used to having romantic or vulnerable or close experiences with men. Mm. Um, He'd been taught that men are all about power and traditional masculinity. And so while it might be hot to fuck them, you know, in that very rough and ready way, men weren't the people that you turn to for uh, a laugh or for bonding or for, for comfort or for, uh, for, for, um, for romance, for those intimate moments. There's also m- just more of a culture, you know, cruising and all of that baked into gay lifestyles, isn't there? Which isn't encompassing everybody, obviously, and I'm not yes, saying it good is. Point. Yeah, but, yeah, you well know, said. For, for decades, <laughs> there was an idea that men who want to have sex with men might be seeking casual sex first and foremost and then maybe you'll end up in a relationship and da-di-da-di-da. You know, there wasn't equal marriage, there wasn't all this stuff. People weren't used to thinking of it like that. Whereas, generally, if you were a man who was interested in a woman, you had to at least pretend that you were interested in an emotional connection, <laughs> otherwise you wouldn't be able to get one. I mean, that, that was a baked-in distinction for a long time. And there is nothing wrong with baking yourself a tasty little casual sex pie, if that is what you're into. All I and Vanit and Anthony are suggesting here is that it's worth checking whether that is indeed what you want. Um, Anthony suggested that it might be freeing to dig into quote-unquote queer sexual desires with women too. If it's anal sex, if it's the idea of being penetrated anally that is something that appeals to this guy, has he explored pegging? There might just be more sexual flavours and experiences for for him to explore here. Um, Vanit said maybe if he wants to going on a date with a man, uh, exploring whether it might feel comfy to be a little bit more cosy with someone rather than casual. If you want to, that option is there. Um, There's a few books as well by Notes for a Bisexual Revolution by Shiri Eisner. Uh, By the way, excellent uh, name for a book. The Bisexual Guide to Life by the fabulous Lois Shearling. And Vinit also suggested that it might be further illuminating for this person to look into the idea of asexuality and aromanticism. That is where you don't feel inclined towards having sex under certain circumstances or or being romantic. Those things can be cross-oriented. Rather than being baffled, though, there are lots of people who can guide you through that until you settle on something which, at least for now, helps you find your way through life. Good stuff. If you've got a question of sex for Alex to answer in a future edition of the show, what should you do with it, Alex? Lube yourself up and slip slide over to the website modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and hit feedback to get in touch with me. 
And with that, we very nearly reached the end of this edition of The Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new ambassador. It is David from Australia, David Thomas, who regular as clockwork this time of year always sends me a £50 donation. Thank you, David, for that and all your previous generous donations. They're massively appreciated. Uh, you've never asked to be a ambassador, but this year you used PayPal, so I got to see your billing address. So I've worked out where you live. <laughs> so I'm going to out you as a man fan, David, whether you wanted to or not. I'm appointing you, as a token of our thanks, ambassador to the Sydney suburb of Concord, New South Wales. Congratulations. Uh, until next time, our music is by Django Django. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Matt Hill. And we'll see you with something new on July the 10th. So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every week. Weekday, wherever you get your podcasts.